I'm an ecologist by training. I spent all of grad school outside in rural Tennessee hanging out with frogs and salamanders and turtles. The lab I was in wasn't exactly well-funded, so we had to work with the limited resources that we had. I've heard stories from folks about the weird Walmart runs or Target runs they've had, but for me it was more about my dual role as scientist and groundskeeper. One day, after weed whacking, or weed eating, whatever you call it, around one of our outdoor areas where we did our experiments, I slowly noticed that I was having some trouble breathing. Not like shortness of breath or anything, but just trouble getting the air through my throat and into my lungs. I realized that my throat was closing up. When I was out weed whacking earlier, I had failed to notice that there was poison ivy mixed in with everything else. And so when the machine hit the ivy, it would cut it, but then throw all these little particles into the air that I ended up breathing in. As my throat was closing, I made a call to my doctor who wrote me an emergency prescription for a steroid and suggested that I immediately chow down on some Benadryl. I ended up being okay, and after a few days, frankly, I was back to normal. Now I, I have a house and land in the yard, and I love doing yard work. But I'm always especially on high alert for poison ivy. Everyone has a story, even, or maybe especially, scientists. Science affects each and every one of us. Let's talk about it. From the American Geophysical Union, I'm Shane Hanlon, and this is Sci and Tell. Welcome to episode two of Sci and Tell. If you missed our kickoff with Karen St. Germain, it's one up in your feed or at scientel.org. For this episode, we chatted with Sharmila Bhattacharya, Chief Scientist for Astrobionics at NASA Ames Research Center. Basically, she studies how space affects humans. And while she doesn't have a story about poison ivy, per se, she's definitely had some interesting experiences out in the field. Our interviewer was Paul Molin. So my name is Sharmila Patacharya, and I work for NASA, uh, NASA headquarters. So I'm a scientist, and my role is I'm the program scientist for NASA's space biology program. So this is the program that's um, interested in looking at the fundamental biology of how systems respond to the space environment. Um, and so my job specifically is to make, you know, help NASA make strategic plans and prioritize the science that we do so that we can keep, you know, so we understand how to sustain, you know, habitation as well as exploration. You know, when astronauts go into deep space for periods of time, we have to understand how to keep them safe, you know, how to send, you know, food with them and, and all of this good stuff, as well as do science on alongside that to understand the underlying uh, changes that happen to systems in space so that in the big picture, then at the end of the day, we can keep uh, humans safe in space. As you know, now NASA works, uh, you know, and works alongside many of these, you know, the SpaceX's and the Northrop Grumman's and the Blue Origins uh, today so that we can work as partners to getting things into space. And my interest is, of course, in ensuring that we get the science 
reliably and frequently into space so that we can do our investigations. So I think it starts with the fact that I really enjoyed science, but you know, I also loved English. So I loved writing, you know, I loved reading. I still do. So literature, you know, was something that was very near to my heart as well. I loved math. I liked physics. I liked biology. I loved chemistry. I loved history, right? So in some ways it was a tough choice. So when it came to, um, you know, choosing the the one path, it was a little bit of a, what's the word, like a toss up, you know, because, and then it struck me that, okay, if, so which part of science, so let's say if I want to do science, which part of science do I love? And then I think, you know, biology for me was what came to mind. And then I thought, okay, and I love writing, but then, you know, in biology, and frankly, this is something that maybe a lot of young folk uh, who are interested in science careers may not think about, but writing and communications and reading and literature, all of this actually tie in, and history, tie in very much together because you, no matter how good your sciences or how well your experiments go, if you can't communicate that and if you can't write grants effectively, then you don't get funded. Or if you don't communicate effectively at a conference, then your colleagues don't understand what work you're doing. And then you may as well not have done it, right? So communications, writing, English, all of this actually flows very nicely together with science. And so at the end of the day, I think as I grew, you know, in age and maturity uh, and experience, I realized that it's not really that much of an either or. I think the biggest challenge is funding. So science, you know, and, and it's... Uh, Something, uh, Paul, that I think, you know, it, it jumps out at us today as we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic, where what what are we looking to as the holy grail that's going to get us out of this? It's science, right? It's the vaccines that are going to be developed. It's the interventions. It's those medications. You know, it's the drugs. It's that is what's going to get us out of this. And so I think what sometimes we as people uh, as a nation and, and perhaps even sometimes globally, what we forget, we take science for granted, we we assume it's going to bail us out of situations, but, but we often don't uh, fund it to the extent that would really be helpful when we need it. And if you think back, you know, to the the heydays of, of most nations, including ourselves, and we think of the Apollo era, we think of, you know, sending humans to the moon for the very first time, right? It was all based on having a solid foundation of funding for the nation for science. And I think so it, when I look back, just at even from my personal standpoint as a scientist having a career in science, I think the biggest challenge for most scientists is the funding. If you could be doing anything else you think with your life, uh, if you didn't end up in the sciences, where do you, what do you think you would have done? Theater. 
100% theater. Yeah, I, I did a lot of plays and theater growing up in school, K through 12. Love that world. And then, of course, as I you know got to college and things just got busy and you know, I was majoring in, in biological chemistry, not theater. So I didn't even have time to take theater courses actually in college. Uh, but then in grad school, actually, I did uh, participate again. In, so high school, I'd done some even semi, semi-professional semi type stuff. And then in grad school, then I, I worked with some other groups outside of the university. Uh, and we put some small, you know, like community type theater that I participated in that I loved. But that's the thing is, as you get more and more, you know, focused on your expertise, you know, your area of expertise and in your career, uh, you really got to pick one. And so, uh, you know, and I love both, but I really did love the science. And of course, you know, (laughs) it's hard to make a, a living off of theater, (laughs) <laughs> Not that it's that easy making a living out of science, but, you know, of the two, uh, since I love both, I figured, you know, maybe someday I'll get back to theater. And I certainly attend the theater a lot to watch others on stage. I just love it. But maybe when I retire, maybe I'll, you know, go back to some aspect of theater if I can. What uh, What was your favorite role you ever played? Oh, goodness. So it was a play about Alan Turing, person. He he was English, and he was the person who actually broke the code for World War Two. World War Two, the German code, you know, during the war, and and that was a huge turning point, you know, for the Allies. And so there's a a story about his life, and so we did that as a play. And I played a role as, uh, you know, a, a, a lover uh, for Alan Turing and really enjoyed because because actually more than anything else there again, I enjoyed learning about his life and his, oh, he faced challenges like you wouldn't believe and just learning about his challenges and and how he handled it and, and lived to still produce something that was so critical for the country. So yeah, I guess maybe that would would have probably been my most uh, fun (laughs) role. The thing that I think in life in general that I'm most proud of is having raised a decent, kind, intelligent, and loving human being, which is my daughter. The day if I had to think of what is the one thing that I am really proud that I spent a lot of energy and time doing it is, you know, raising a good human being, a good citizen for the future. Well, and you mentioned when I asked it, you know, your greatest personal achievement is the woman your daughter turned out to be. You don't do that without having a grasp on work-life balance and being able to know, you know, prioritize. How? What advice would you give on how you're able to to manage that work-life balance? I think the main thing is I just really enjoyed parenting. I loved spending time with my daughter uh, and I love doing the things together that we did. So, so I think the main thing is to look upon it as fun. And, you know, of course it's not always fun. You know, we who are parents know, 
You know, there'll be days then they're sick. There are days you have an important meeting where you can't, you know, where you've had to prepare and you just can't take a breather for days on end. And that's where I think actually having supportive friends and families and partners uh, around you can, you know, be a huge help. And that's how it was for me. Very fortunately, I was able to rely on help, you know, whether it was from my partner, whether it was from my mother, who on occasion would, you know, come and stay with us when my daughter was young. You know, my husband and I always juggled our schedule so that we were never out of town on work travel at the same time. So it takes coordination. You know, we had friends and neighbors who who were this amazing, supportive community who we could rely on, you know, my friend and neighbor across the street, Barb, you know, she was like a second mom to my daughter, you know, on, on many occasions. So it's, it's, it's all, it, it, as they say, takes a village, right. To raise kids. And it's so true building those, that support network and, and having that group around you is really good, not just for working parents, but also I think for the kids. Did your daughter end up in the sciences? She did, actually. She majored in biological chemistry at Brown University. So, yes. <laughs> now, she she's very interested, of course, also in, you know, business and commercial you know, companies. So she's working uh, in a healthcare consulting company after graduation. Uh, but, yes, she's definitely a very analytical thinker and, and very interested in, in science for sure. And one of the reasons I think it's very important to have these conversations that you and I are having today is that it's important to communicate to people, you know, whether it's to my mother or to my grandmother or to my, you know, uncle, what it is that we do and why it's important and how it contributes to society is a very important dialogue for us to continue to have. And so for those kids who love science, it's important for them too to voice that interest to the adults around them uh, because that's how folks realize the value and that's how we as a nation you know, invest in the future of our country by investing in science you know, uh, going up forward. You know, and one more thing I would say, yes, the first about raising their voices, you know, being an important part of the nation's discussion as they are doing today in politics and in many other things, you know, and, and they need to continue to do that. In addition, I would one thing I would say to our young scientists that, you know, a career in science is really fun. And it is something that you can be sure of will never get boring, will never be repetitive. It's collaborative, you know, and also people sometimes have this view of that scientists are siloed in their own little world and you don't talk to anybody. No, science is a community. It's, you know, as we were saying earlier, you know, it's all about communication and collaboration and partnering and talking to other scientists and exchanging ideas and working as a team, you know, across disciplines, you know, you, you are really interested in biology, but somebody else and their computer science skills and somebody else with their math skills and somebody else with their mechanical engineering skills together, 
you know, build an experiment and build the hardware to do in space. And that's how we do it. You know, I work with folks in, in the, you know, planetary science and earth science and computers and, you know, engineering and, and all of us together make it happen. And so, so it's, it's really fun. You never stop learning, you know, you're forever learning new things. And I love that. I'm with Sharmila on this one. I love learning. Years ago, when I was that grad student and sometimes landscaper, I would have laughed folks right out of the field if someone had told me that I'd be a professional science communicator, storyteller, and podcast host, all while still being in the sciences. I'm definitely inspired after listening to this story, and I want to thank Sharmila for sharing it with us. Special thanks to NASA for making this episode possible, and to Paul Molin for conducting the interview. If you've liked what you've heard, Stay tuned for future episodes. You can subscribe to Scientel wherever you get your podcast and find us at Scientel, all spelled out, dot org. From this scientist in a studio to all of you out there in the world, thanks for listening to our stories. <laughs>